global trading system breaking down? And how worried should small open economies like Ireland be about the gathering of forces which oppose free trade for a whole range of reasons? To discuss these questions and many others related to trade and globalization, we are joined for today's insights by Keith Lockwell. It's a great pleasure to welcome Keith back to the IIEA, most importantly because there are very few people alive who know as much about the multilateral trading system and how it works as Keith does, and also because it's the first occasion he's joined us since being liberated from his senior role at the World Trade Organization in Geneva. Keith is now a Global Fellow at Washington's Wilson Center and a Senior Research Fellow at Singapore's Heinrich Foundation. Prior to that, he spent more than a quarter of a century in the World Trade Organization as its Director of Information and External Relations. You're really welcome, Keith. Good to see you again. And great to be with you. So, uh, Keith, let's start with your home country, the US. Uh, you wrote a paper recently, and I'll quote it here. The deep skepticism on trade that was once the currency of anti-globalization activists or long protected corners of US industry is now expressed openly and regularly by US trade officials. So that was a very stark uh, line in one of your recent reports, which I think captures the, the degree to which the country that has led the global trading system for, for 70 years has changed in its view. Talk us through a bit what's behind such a huge change. Okay, well, I mean, we've been blasted by a series of, of crises in the last half a dozen years. Um, we had Brexit and we had Trump, which like it or not, probably are still with us in one form or another. Uh, and then we had to cope with uh, the pandemic, uh, the war in uh, Ukraine and the increasing tensions between the superpowers, the US and China and their various uh, uh, allies as well. Now, all of those things have had an influence on, uh, it hasn't just been these issues that have been uh, sort of buffeting the economy and global trade, it's the policy responses to those, those events. And I think nowhere is this more um, clearly seen than in the United States. Now, Donald Trump tapped into something which has been sort of in the, in the public discussion for some time. And that is the disconcerted view of many people in working class um, uh, environments, most of them white men, who believe that they have been given a raw deal. Uh, whether you subscribe to that view or not, this is what they think. And they have been uh, very keen to vote along lines uh, that express their, their anger. And Mr. Trump tapped into this uh, and it led to his being elected president. Now, this is something that, that the, the Democrats looked at very closely. And so when you see uh, the way in which uh, Trump responded first and foremost to China, by whacking them with about 400, 500 billion worth of, of uh, uh, sanctions on their imports. Uh, this was something that was not criticized too widely apart from some economists. And it was taken into the mainstream of politics. And so what you have right now is a bipartisan view that China is a rival and perhaps even something more sinister than that. Now, if you superimpose over this, the traditional democratic skepticism towards trade, which I referred to in that quote that you cited, 
then you begin to see what the problem is. It's not just China. It's this feeling that somehow the United States has adhered in an overzealous way to the notion that markets should be the determining factor in terms of economic policy. It's not true, of course. Uh, you only need to look at US agriculture policy, sugar, maritime, textiles, steel, we can go down the list, but that's been the, the impression people have. And so President Biden, he, it's not a coincidence that he had Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, deliver this speech about industrialization. Because the way, the way President Biden sees it, the threats to the United States are principally twofold, one, China, and two, the re-election of Donald Trump. And if this can be in some way stymied, well, then that's a, a, a security step that the United States will have taken. I, I, I don't mean to exaggerate this, but that's really the way he sees it. And so if you go back and look at what the U.S. has done, what the president has accomplished, it's probably the most impressive set of legislative achievements since Lyndon Johnson. OK, the, the, the infrastructure bill the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is sort of uh, a misnomer, but, but let's forget about that, and the Chips and Science Act. All of these are steps in the direction, big steps in the direction of industrial policy. Now, I don't want to in any way give the impression that I am completely opposed to all of these things because I'm not. And the administration is right when they say that markets are unable to address certain very important problems that we confront today. First and foremost would be the question of climate change. Uh, the negative externality of carbon emissions has not been addressed by any government through a market, uh, solely through a market system. So now what you have is the European Union's carbon border adjustment measure. The US is going a different route and funneling billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into green energy projects, this is a, this is a good thing. Um, the same thing with the infrastructure. The infrastructure in the US, and you know this well, has been increasingly dilapidated. And somehow the idea that, oh, well, you know, the private sector will just step in and fix it. Well, tell that to the people of Philadelphia when the biggest highway in the country collapsed just outside the city a couple of weeks ago. The fact of the matter is that without the government being involved, you're not going to get better roads, you're not going to get better ports, you're not going to get better airports or telecoms networks. So these are all things that he's done that are important. The downside to this, it's really self-centered. There was no checking on this with anybody. And President Macron, when he went to, uh, to Washington last December, was <laughs> pretty straightforward in expressing his displeasure about how these programs were going to hurt Europe. So, and, and, and we can talk about this more, there is a complete and total disregard by the United States for the rules of the World Trade Organization. Whether or not these programs would, would fall foul of dispute settlement, um, would be outside of compliance with, for example, the subsidies agreement, it's not clear. I'm not a lawyer, as you know, but many people believe they do. And the US doesn't want any part of that. So um, in, in a slightly uh, prolonged response to your, to your question, I would say that is in essence what the US is doing. And, and Biden is not, he is an internationalist. Don't forget he chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for quite a long time. 
He's, he's well aware of the sensitivity of neighbors. He knows that the allies are a factor that the US can bring to bear that the Chinese simply can't. So he's trying to, there's a, there's a, a columnist for the, for the New York Times named Ezra Klein who refers to these various policy prescriptions as the everything bagel approach to, to dealing with problems. He's trying to accomplish dozens of things with these pieces of legislation and other policy pronouncements and that makes it very difficult to, A, to ensure that the objectives are followed, and B, to even know what the real objectives really are. I've got about 10 questions. Well, straight <laughs> out of that. Uh, let me just flag, as well as Keith's uh, writings, the, 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 he mentioned Jake, you, you mentioned Jake Sullivan's uh, speech in April. I think it was at Brookings. Any, anybody who's on here wants to look at that, I think it was probably the single, one of the most important international economic policy speeches any leading US official has made in, in a very long time. So if it's available in text format, if anybody wants to go and look for it, it really is significant. Um, so a very wise compatriot of yours said to a group I was talking to the other day, privately, about the Europeans not being 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 annoyed with the, with the US. She said, what were all the European diplomats in, in Washington doing? Do they not get wind of this? Do they not try and intervene in the legislative, legislative process? There are 27, um, 27 embassies there, as well as the, 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 uh, the EU embassy itself. Yeah. Um, is that a valid sort of criticism she made of the European side? Well, I think the Europeans uh, are in a bit of a conundrum because, because by and large, they like Joe Biden, they agree with him, and they're as happy as can be that he's the president and not Donald Trump. Um, he is an internationalist. His views on climate change are very similar to theirs. He may have a different policy prescription. Um, they may not like CBAM, um, but they are at least trying to find common ground. And you can see that in this steel and, and aluminum agreement, which they, they're trying to hammer out, which they have until October to try and finalize. Um, but you can see that in a host of other ways, too, the response to Russia. I mean, in, in stark contrast to the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, when, when, um, when White House began to sound the alarm about Russia and the initial reaction was, well, you know, we've heard this before. In fact, everything that they said, the Americans, turned out to be true. And the U.S. response was decisive and quick. And this was something that the Europeans, I think, were, were very pleased with. So they also have found a degree of common ground on, for example, digital trade. Um, the, the whole question, and we can talk about this more if you'd like, the whole question of data privacy and data security, um, even though the U.S. is home and, and Ireland is the second home to many of these huge uh, information technology companies, the U.S. has a lot more sensitivity to the European concerns on data privacy now than they did under Donald Trump. And, and so these are all areas where there is common ground. And I think um, that if they had tried, remember these, these, these things passed by the skin of their teeth, there was a very narrow majority in the, in the Senate. And if they had somehow weighed in and derailed this, um, my guess is they thought that that would have been uh, a, a, a much worse outcome than getting a heavily subsidy laden program, um, which would um, 
possibly have negative repercussions for them. In, in terms of negative repercussions, that but cut to the chase, I suppose, from, from an Irish perspective, do you think the relation, the trade and investment relationship between Ireland and the US, which, as you know, is extremely, uh, is unusual in, 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 in its closeness, the amount of US money invested in, in uh, Ireland and vice versa, um, is, is extraordinary. But either under this administration or under a Republican-led administration, do you see risks for that model? Do you, for example, see protectionist measures against the EU? Do you see this president or future presidents actively taking measures to try and lure American companies, employing people here in Ireland, back to the US? No. Okay. I, I would be absolutely astounded if this president did anything which, which might hurt Ireland. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, he's very proud of his Irish roots. There's 40 plus million people in the United States of Irish origin. And I think that um, he, just, he, he received a, a fantastic reception when he visited Ireland, whenever it was a couple of months ago, I guess. Um, no, he would never do that. Um, he is, I would say he's pro-European. I'd say he has good relations with, um, with European leaders. You know, Macron delivered a very straightforward message to him, and 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 Ursula von der Leyen did a similar thing. And I think he, to tell you the truth, I think he actually appreciated it because he did seem to try and find a way forward, which might enable there to be some access to these subsidies, for example, for electric vehicles. Um, there's going to be some difficulty in pulling that off because if it has to go back to Congress, he won't get it through. You saw the bill that McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, put forward would have gutted the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and I think what's, what you're going to see, if these programs are given a chance to take root, they're going to be extremely popular domestically. Trying to cushion the blow for U.S. allies is an important objective. Whether they can thread that needle, I do not know. But I think he's going to, he's going to do his best to try and find a way to keep everybody on board in as many different fields as he can, because that's just in his nature. So it's certainly reassuring what you say from an Irish perspective, but more generally, and particularly if there's, if there's a, a Republican candidate, might ask you as well, is there any Republican candidate from the country club wing of the party that's more traditionally pro-business, pro-trade? Um, but from what you're saying, I think, that might suggest that European concerns about US policy, be it their domestic industrial policy or trade policy, might be overstated, and that we have less to worry about, not just in Ireland, but Europe as a, as a trading bloc. Well, compare it to five years ago. Um, I mean, it's a very big difference. The concerns now, one of the concerns then was that the United States would pull out of NATO. I mean, imagine that. Um, so you've got a very different, it's a more subtle range of, of differences than you had before. Uh, and I think, for example, on the World Trade Organization, there's a big, big gap between what Europe thinks um, and what the U.S. thinks. And there's always been disagreements in the WTO between Europe and the U.S., but there was never disagreement over the fundamental importance of the WTO and the multilateral trading system, and now there is. Um, on other issues, I think the Europeans are, are doing a good job of trying to 
persuade the United States and the president in a way which is not um, antagonistic. So whether or not, I mean, there will be trade disputes, but if you look at things like, and, and, and Secretary Yellen has given a few important speeches as well, uh, and she's introduced this whole notion of friendshoring. Um, I mean, friendshoring would be something that um, I think would be a benefit to the EU. One of the problems is how do you define your friends? And the way they've decided to do it is that it's the group with which you have a trade agreement. And of course, the US and the EU trade on WTO terms. Um, so what they've tried to do with, with respect to this um, uh, uh, big subsidy package under the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, is to try and find a way that you can say there is a trade agreement between the US and the EU. And that has to do with joint availability, joint dissemination of essential minerals. Uh, it's, it's quite a long title it's affixed to this, and it by no means meets the definition of a free trade agreement, but they did a deal like this with Japan, and they're trying to negotiate something like this with the EU. I'm not exactly clear where things are on that, but it would be very important to have this in place so that then these subsidies can be extended to a whole range of European companies that are participating in this kind of industries. We could easily have spent the 45 minutes just talking about the US, Europe, uh, but I definitely want to get your, your insights into the, the WTO itself and maybe start with a kind of sense of your colleagues in the secretariat of the WTO. What the, you know, do they feel sidelined? Do they feel the future of the organization is at risk clearly as, as a, the arbitration system has broken down? Uh, it doesn't look like the U.S. mainly because the U.S. hasn't hasn't uh, uh, sent representatives to those arbitration panels, and it doesn't look like Joe Biden's going to do it either. Um, so, it, it, is there a sense within the uh, the WTO things are, are not looking good for it as, an, as a relevant multilateral organization? Well, I would respond then in the following way. Um, Things in the WTO right now are probably better than you think, but they're not good. Um, the multilateral initiatives, there was a deal on fishery subsidies that was struck at the ministerial conference a year ago. That was a big deal. There was a, an agreement on the administration, quite a technical agreement on the administration of agricultural quotas, which should open up markets for uh, a variety of different um, agricultural interests, including perhaps Irish beef farmers. Um, but there's very little to see on the multilateral front, which is positive. A broader agreement on agriculture ain't happening. Industrial goods, just no way. Um, the people are arguing about things like, what is the definition of a developing country? What is development? You know, it's how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and you have circular discussions which which lead nowhere. The, the situation with the appellate body and the and the dispute settlement system is even more dire if that's possible. The U.S., as you rightly say, shows no interest in reviving this. Uh, if you look at some of the things they've done, whether it's their response to China, whether it's their um, legislative agenda, they're not going to expose this to scrutiny of an appellate body, um, which they believe was, was formed in a way that was not advantageous to the members. And this is, this is something which, by the way, a lot of the complaints that were raised 
by, by the predecessors of Catherine Tai, by, by Bob Lighthizer and among others in the Trump administration, these concerns about the appellate body that they raised, that they were guilty of overreach, of putting in place jurisprudence, et cetera. Many other countries have come around to this view as well, but they say, okay, fine, let's fix it. And the US does not offer any solutions because I think they would prefer to go back to the gap days where dispute settlement was not binding. Um, so, so that's a problem. Where there is something good happening in the WTO is on the question of plurilateral agreements. India and South Africa are opposed to any sort of negotiations unless they are on development issues specific to them. Um, but over 100 members are participating in electronic commerce discussions. We'll have an agreement perhaps as soon as next week on investment which many people thought would have been um, impossible. Now it's not, this will not be investor protection. It will not be investor state um, uh, dispute settlement. It will be somewhat along the lines of the trade facilitation agreement, whereby it's a transparent set of rules and guidelines that can be followed. And the objective here is to attract investment into developing countries. E-commerce, um, this would be a very big deal. I think there's 189 members are participating in this now. Uh, digital, digitally de uh, delivered trade came to almost $4 trillion last year, uh, and that figure is growing rapidly. Um, we now have three different sets of, of sort of standards. We have the EU, we have the US, and we have China. If the US and the EU can agree on two key issues, the cross-border data flows and the localization of data, and these are all about data privacy and data protection, if they can reach an agreement on this, uh, and again, Biden has shown a willingness to try and find compromise, uh, then th there could be a breakthrough there. If not, you might get an agreement which is more nuts and bolts on e-contracts, e-signatures, a, a common global standard for these things, which which may sound uh, rather pedestrian, but in fact, uh, if you're talking to small business people, um, particularly in developing countries, but also in, in developed countries, if you have a common standard that makes it easier for them to trade digitally, this is a big, big benefit to them. So those agreements may be, may be reached. There was a very important agreement on domestic regulation and services that will cut trade costs by about $150 billion worth of of, of, of uh, business a year. Um, you had something like 68, almost 70 members participating in that. These are all plurilateral initiatives. They're extended, they're extended under MFN to all members, but things are happening there. But is that the same thing as negotiating a Uruguay round or a Doha round? No, it isn't. Okay, okay. Well, that, that, certainly that's, you know, it, it, I was, Kind of thinking that maybe your former colleagues are spending a lot of time twiddling their thumbs these, these days, but clearly that's that's you know in, in the investment agreements, domestic of the, the regulation of services, e-commerce. Like it sounds as a lot going on in that plurilateral space. Like yeah. is that future for, for the WTO and maybe a crude way of, of measuring it, just in terms of the amount of activity at, at, at WTO headquarters, the number of meetings there are. You know, how, how, have they declined over time, suggesting that the bodies become less relevant? I, that's a crude measure, I know, but just any sort of thoughts about just, just exactly just how much activity is actually going on uh, at the Secretariat? 
Well, Mexico, a very important member of the WTO, has closed its WTO mission. Wow. Okay. If you think about the, the number of outstanding uh, Mexican negotiators, ambassadors, deputies, director general, um, who have been um, very active in the WTO system, that's a bit of a shock. Um, the, the meetings, I would say, no, they're still attended. Um, it's not always a good um, uh, way to, to assess by looking in the room because more and more you have people participating in the way that we're discussing right now. Um, you, you can see, for example, a press conference, press conferences that I would, I would hold. Um, you would have maybe five or six people in the room, but you'd have 150 people participating from around the world. That was a COVID-inspired change, which enabled broader participation. Um, it's, not, it's not the same thing, but it's, it's, a, it's certainly something that people have preserved. So I would say that the place is still busy. We have a ministerial conference. I shouldn't say we anymore, but the WTO will have a ministerial meeting in, in February. And the last ministerial conference um, succeeded beyond people's expectations. There were a lot of things delivered there. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was, it was going to put the trading system back on the rails because I don't think it has, but it was clearly a, an important achievement and I think that inspired people. I think people are now realizing that the next steps will be even harder. Uh, let's move to China as any discussion of trade these days. You, you were already with the uh, WTO for a good few years before China joined in, in 2001. I had a look at the, the, the trade data this morning. Uh, US nominal terms, Chinese goods exports have risen 20 fold since 2001. There's no other major country that's anything close to that. Um, obviously, China now accounts for you know thirty percent of global manufacturing. It is a superpower, as you described it earlier on. Talk us through just how the Chinese delegation in in Geneva has changed over time. How their positions have changed. How they've become more assertive, if that is indeed the case. Yeah, they have. They have. They want to be represented at high levels in the secretariat, and they are. Um, they are very keen. Look, they, they are uh, very aware that the multilateral trading system has helped them. Um, now, I think there's been a false narrative put forward that somehow the Chinese were able to get in scot-free. They paid nothing to get in. I've got the, the statistics here. If you look at this, I mean, it's true. China is the world's largest um, uh, exporter but they're also the second largest importer. And they took in $2.7 trillion worth of imports last year, which is almost twice as much as the third leading country, Germany. So to suggest, if you go back and look at the same set of data that you referred to and look on the import side, I think on imports, it's 17 fold or something like this. Um, still very important. And if you think about, for example, during the financial crisis, China keeping its market open was absolutely essential to keeping many of its neighbors and indeed trading partners around the world from plunging even deeper into recession. So it's a bit unfair to say that China has not lived up to its terms in the WTO. It may be that the rules as they're currently constructed do not cover things like the participation of the Chinese Communist Party on boards of foreign companies with headquarters or operations in China. Um, 
it may be that intellectual property protections uh, don't cover things like forced transfer of source code. Uh, that may well be, um, but the Chinese, it, it's very unfair in my view to say that they have not played by the rules, uh, maybe not in every instance, but if you look at the numbers, you can see that the Chinese have done quite a lot. Um, now, things have changed since 2013, 2014. Uh, China is less uh, enamored of market-based uh, politics, market-based policies. They are now going much more for a state-driven approach. And they are looking at things through a very different prism. Uh, and that, I think, has changed people's attitudes. There are all the other geopolitical things, Hong Kong, Taiwan, et cetera, um, that are complicating the picture as well. And I, I, and I think that there is reason um, for the US and the EU to be prudent in their relations with China. But I think it's also unfair to say that, that the WTO agreement was one in which uh, China benefited and everybody else lost. That's, that's just not the case. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, speaking to Americans, whatever their hue, there seems to be a view that WTO, WTO accession for China led to the deindustrialization of the US. Yeah. I, I, it just seems to be, everyone seems to believe that, although the evidence for it is just not there. Uh, no, it trades more with China than the US does. Uh, yeah. you know, has that led to large-scale deindustrialization in Europe over the past 20 years? No. Um, so well, I mean, and, and, and the thing, the problem with this, this is a big problem, the industrial policy orientation and this, this foolish notion that the U.S. is only about markets, only about markets. I mean, let's not talk about financial markets because that's something else. And regulation of financial markets is a different thing than, than trading goods and services. Um, but this notion that somehow the U.S. has, has been, been the slave of the markets is completely untrue. I mean, the sugar policy in the U.S., I mean, it, it's something that could have come from Stalin's Soviet Union. It's not a market program at all. So, I mean, that's, that's absurd. And the second thing is, if you want to know about income inequality, look at the Gini coefficient. Now, look at a country like Ireland or like Denmark or Belgium and look at income inequality in those countries and then look at their trade to GDP ratios. Those countries are much more trade dependent than the US. The US is about 25% of GDP, and they have a pretty dreadful um, a Gini coefficient. By the way, South Africa has the worst, and, and, uh, and Brazil doesn't have a very good uh, situation with income inequality either. And these countries are not big on trade. So that argument doesn't seem to really uh, pass muster, at least as far as I'm concerned. And the other thing is, Let's just take a look at what the real drivers of income inequality are. Um, a lack of access to adequate education, adequate housing, adequate health care. All of these things contribute to, to the income inequality. Now, to the president's credit, he's trying to address those things. But again, look at Europe. Europe has a much better social uh, uh, safety net than the United States. And they have much less of a problem with income inequality. And, and trade, I mean, this part of the world trades much, much more than the US. And it doesn't, I mean, how, how do they square that circle? Like every time you raise this with them, they kind of do this <laughs> because they don't like being confronted with these facts. Yeah, fact-free narratives, I suppose we all have them in every country. <laughs> they, don't, they don't like being challenged with facts, you know, no. based on. 
on evidence. But okay, so just in in terms of how the other delegations deal with the Chinese, is it a spikier? Is that wider deterioration in relations, particularly with the U.S. and and China, but also clearly within Europe now, there's you know de-risking relations, trade relations with China is everyone saying it. The uh, the Polish Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister here uh, made a speech just a couple of weeks ago on China, echoing that de-risking language. Mm. Is that playing out in terms of how the delegations interact there, in terms of how the the, the diplomatic missions to WTO interact? Well, China has always had very high-quality ambassadors and staff, and they're very good at networking. And the Chinese have presented themselves as, as... a, if not the leader of the developing world, which, which has caused a lot of frictions with other countries, um, get, to extend special and differential treatment to the world's largest trading nation and second largest economy rubs some people the wrong way. Um, but they are very good at pre- preserving this principle of special and differential treatment. What that means is that developing countries assume less onerous sets of, of um of a burden in terms of um, the, their contribution to uh, any negotiation. Their level of commitment is far less than that of say the EU or the US or Japan. Uh, now the Chinese have addressed this to a certain extent by saying they want to continue to be classified as a developing country, but would not seek special and differential treatment on things like fishing, for example. Um, which would have been the end of any fishing, fishing subsidies agreement because the Chinese are the world's largest subsidizer of, of fishing fleets. Uh, so I, I think that they've been quite skillful at, at their diplomacy in the WTO. Um, they were in the Trump administration subject to quite um, stinging attacks from the US delegation in meetings like the General Council and they were very good at, at responding and deflecting. Um, so I would not say, I think people, you know, they're diplomats. So they tend largely to separate their interaction with colleagues from whatever the politics may be at the moment. Uh, one of the reasons for that, of course, is when you have a wide array of issues before you, you could find yourself seated across the table from someone this morning and on the same side of the table with them this afternoon. So. I, I haven't really seen that. People tend not to make things personal, but that was a bit different under the Trump administration. Interesting. And in, in terms, I'd like to talk talk a bit about India, but I don't think we've time. Definitely want to bring it back towards Europe. Um, in terms of the EU's role, of course, the, the European Commission's exclusive competence in, in making trade deals and, uh, and is heavily involved in WTO, but the relationship with the member states is obviously important and their, their views are there. In, in terms of the shift in policy in the U.S., do you see that reflected in Europe? Obviously, there's talk about strategic autonomy, this sort of kind of view of the world. Do you, do you think the kind of what might be called the French view, a, a more um, a view to focus more on security rather than open markets and price, low price, has has become more prevalent in the for the Europeans? Well, you wouldn't. I mean, as you know better than I, the, the um, process of arriving at a common position amongst the 27 is a complex one. And so 
you won't necessarily see the French position reflected by the commission. Um, you would see a more, much more nuanced um, Brussels-oriented approach, uh, which is extremely um, favorable to the multilateral system. I would say at the moment, the, the biggest supporters and defenders of the WTO are the European Union. Okay. And many other, many other smaller entities on whom the, the, the on, on whom they depend, um, sorry, on which they depend for, um, on, for the WTO immensely. So without the WTO, many smaller countries, um, uh, Ireland within the EU context is, is shielded up to a great extent, but for example, Switzerland or Singapore or New Zealand, these countries, they depend on the WTO um, for keeping the system opening and functioning so that they can keep trading. If it becomes a, a, the laws of the jungle and might makes right, they lose. Um, again, lots of, lots of issues around Ireland, but I do, do you want to maybe look at the developing world, at the role of trade in the developing world? Of course, you're, you're new or not so new. Um, former boss is the first African head of WTO. Mm -hmm. How important is that role in general? You know, how big a difference does the boss make? Or is it more, you know, a, a sort of somebody who, who tries to herd cats and, you know, it's not <laughs> in, in terms of actually directing things, doesn't make that much of a difference. And how is, how is she faring relative to other DGs? Is it director generals? Yeah. yeah. Uh, directors general. Directors, yeah. Thank you. Um, well, yeah. That's, that's, that's many years of press release writing that, that made me get that right. Um, no, I, look, there is a lot of cat herding that goes on. Uh, but the director general is, there isn't, the, 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 the chair of the general council changes every year. It rotates between developed and developing and through the regions, et cetera, et cetera. There, no one is there long enough to be able to um, show really long lasting leadership. Uh, the director general is the person who really is the figurehead of uh, uh, the principal defender of the organization. And Ngozi um, is, is quite a remarkable person. I mean, she's, she is extremely intelligent. She's very tough, uh, indefatigable. And it was in, uh, in large measure, thanks to her, that the outcome of the, of the June 2022 ministerial conference was as positive as it was. She kept everybody there two days. She really annoyed people by keeping them there. It was very hot. She wasn't letting them go. Um, she said, we're going to get an agreement on this. And in the end, of the, at the end, they did. Now, you know, you, you have to have circumstances going in your direction to pull that off. Um, if the members were at complete loggerheads on everything, then she wouldn't have been able to, to pull that off. But she did. She did. Um, I think she's going to face a very steep challenge ahead of the February meeting because the, the low-hanging fruit, such as it, as it has been, has been plucked already. Um, but no, she's a, she's a very dynamic person. She's very tough. Um, she's pushing the WTO in directions that heretofore it has not gone. Carbon pricing, for example, this hasn't gone down well with everybody. Um, she points out that there are 70 different uh, methods for, for pricing carbon, and that as long as you have this kind of um, divergent way of uh, determining 
what the level of carbon is, you're never going to be able to come up with a with an accord or a policy. She's tried to do this, and she got slammed for doing so. Um, but she's she's introducing ideas on, um, uh, for example, women in trade. She's a very big proponent of that. By the way, one of the things I should have mentioned is that 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 agreement on domestic regulation and services was the first WTO agreement that specifically prohibited discrimination against women. None of the signatories of that agreement can introduce policies that may in any way discriminate against women. And that's the first time that's happened, but it will not be the last. And that's, a, that's an important change on social issues, uh, on environmental issues. The membership has, has on bulk changed in a more positive direction. You remember back in the, in the, at the end of the last century in Seattle, these were the issues that brought that meeting crashing down because, because the passions against this were so strong and that's much less the case today. In fact, there's a lot of positive momentum in this direction. Okay, okay, that, that's a pretty uh, uh, strong stamp of approval for your, for your former boss there. Um, more widely in, in terms of the, the least developed countries uh, and their role, their belief in free trade as a, as a rule out of poverty, any, any thoughts on how that's changing as uh, are, are the least developed countries less engaged than they were in the past, like everyone else, I suppose, in the world, there's a kind of move away from free market economics as, as being um, as, as being the way to do things. Do you, do you detect that in, in the least developed countries as well? Well, certainly in the WTO, um, and, and it's, it's dangerous to classify all LDCs, I think there's 46 of them, to classify them all um, in the same way, because of course, you know, Bangladesh and Cambodia are not uh, Djibouti. Um, but having said this, you, you do see a variety of positions, um, but mostly they would like to have better access to rich country markets without having to assume to, to assume the burden of, of, of very heavy commitments to be made uh, to others. Now, this is in, in rather sharp contrast to what the 33 least developed countries in Africa are doing as part of the, of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement negotiations, which are modeled remarkably uh, on WTO agreements. The, the rules section, anti-dumping, safeguard, et cetera, it's the WTO, the dispute settlements, WTO. And they are negotiating um, women's rights in trade, movement of persons, investment, all of these issues that they find anathema in the WTO context, they're taking these things up in the, in the, in the regional continental context, which I find very interesting um, as you probably know, Africa, intra-African trade is only about 15% of overall African trade. Colonial yeah. trading, yeah. Colonial trading patterns are largely still intact, which has not been a good way for them to participate, for example, in value chains. So they're leaning more and more. East Africa has broken out of this and they have a much higher intra-regional trade than, than other parts. But, but this is something that they have taken on board, um, the African leadership. And there's the secretariat for the AF, the African Free Trade. It's a, it's a complicated acronym. For the regional agreement, they have a secretariat in Accra now. Okay. The, African, yeah, the African Union has, has been pushing this very, very strongly. And um, I think you know, they, it's going to take some time. 
Some countries will take on their commitments more rapidly than others, but it's a major step in the right direction. And if they can lift that degree of intra-African, um, continental and regional trade, I think that that's a big step in the right direction in terms of getting them to participate in, in value chains and attracting foreign investment. And look, your point about LDCs and uh, the difference, I, you're absolutely right. And it was kind of something I, I sometimes wonder about the value of, of these classifications, as you say, uh, very different, um, very different challenges and opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Keith, uh, we've hit the 45 minutes. It has been particularly fascinating, um, always is. Uh, and uh, I don't think it'll be too long before we have you back again. So look, we appreciate your time. Uh, it's been great. and. Um, Thanks again for joining us. Dan, a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to everyone following us. Thanks.